0: Well, seven deadly sins, I'm going to just say the word straight out and then we've got it on the table and uh, we can all kind of uh, either mock it or feel uncomfortable with it or run away. The word that we're looking at this afternoon is gluttony. Okay. It's said gluttony. I guess it's a word which uh, to a great extent is incredibly difficult uh, for us to consider in today's climate in terms of a sin. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the medieval theologians who really thought a great deal through this issue of uh, the seven seven deadly sins. And really for us, if you like, it's a framework for us to think through some of the issues of our lives not living in conformity to God's desire and will. So wherever we are living in opposition... Uh, in rebellion, whenever we are living not according to the will and word of God, we are living sinful lives. He said this, gluttony is uh, eating sumptuously, eating daintily, eating hastily, or eating greedily. I think that's uh, really fascinating because I don't know about you, but I look at that list and I think, Yep, (laughs) yep, I I reckon that I could put my name to pretty much all of those. You know, I I eat sumptuously. You know, that sense of uh, this is the best. This is just uh, perfect in every way and it's majestic. Uh, I eat, well, I don't always eat daintily, it's a bit... Girly, isn't it really? But uh, I eat daintily. You know, it's got to be just so. It's just got to be right. I I definitely, definitely eat hastily. Or maybe hastily is just eating spontaneously because you're living as though you're not sure when the next bit of food is going to come your way. Uh, Or I eat greedily. Well, I guess I eat greedily. Yeah. 10K Run Yesterday says that that's the case. It seems kind of quaint, doesn't it, (laughs) that we might think about uh, these kind of things as a sin. Unless and until we just stop uh, and we just think for a minute that maybe the medieval world, maybe the days gone by, had a tap into, had a view of life which dealt with the issues of eating disorder and alcoholism. And all of those issues which are, quite honestly, are they not, hitting headlines for us today. They are, aren't they? Uh, Maybe there is a perspective which is saying they had a grip on something uh, which challenges even today's thinking. They they had a view on it way before. I, I would like us, though, to just get a little bit deeper because I think, really... Uh, These are surface issues and maybe we can take the theme of gluttony and just extend it a little bit. If we look at some of the other things that have gone before, let's take for example the idea of envy. What is envy? We worked out that envy is the desire, the desperate desire for something which is not rightfully ours That's what we said, wasn't it? That's what envy was. It's the desperate desire for something which is not rightfully ours. What's this one looking at? Isn't it taking things which are rightfully ours? Food and drink. And taking moderate desires, things which we by nature by the very nature of who we are, we should have desires for these things. I mean, we have a problem if we haven't got any desire ever for food. If you never, never, never want to eat, you have got a problem. There is an issue. But isn't that the problem? That we take what our natural, ordinary measured desires and we blow them out of all, pro- all proportion and we make moderate desires immoderate desires. We make things which we should need want things w- which we desperately need. We make things which are helpful for us and are useful for us. They make, we make them our essentials For life. Now when we take that perspective to the issue of gluttony. I I hope maybe what it's done is it's allowed us to think maybe a little bit broader. And we can say yeah actually gluttony today looks a bit like this. It looks a bit like an overeating. A desperate overeating or a desperate undereating. It looks Uh, As uh, as though I want to control food as a way of satisfying my deepest needs. It looks like taking alcohol uh, and using it in such a way which is immoderate, which is going way beyond, which is using it in such a way which creates security. For me, let's just take it out a little bit. Let's forget about eating and drinking. Let's take something like relationships. Friendships. There's a great word, friendship, isn't it? Friendships are good things. And yet, don't we live in a generation, don't we live in a world now where friendship and relationship has been blown out of all proportion. It has become our absolute Identity. There was a report um, by uh, an Oxford professor appeared in the uh, paper the other day that says that the Facebook and Twitter generation are losing their identity. They're losing a sense of perspective. We are all now living in um, a way of being, which uh, I, I was thinking about this just past week and said, "We are now wanting to live, and we now have the tools. We have the mechanism. To live our own little celebrity lives, don't we? We live our own little celebrity lives in the world of Facebook and Twitter. Our definition of relationship and friendship is how many people have appreciated my comment? How many people have liked my picture? My definition, my identity, my being is by taking a good thing... Friendship, relationship, a great tool, <laughs> Facebook. It is a great, it is a, it is a piece of technical genius. But we take something like that and we blow it out of all proportion and we say, My identity is now how much I am liked within that world. Aren't we taking what is a good thing and making a moderate desire an immoderate desire? We blow it out of all proportion. When did you last look in the mirror? Some people, uh, I'll say some of us, some of us look in the mirror all the time because we're worried. Because our identity is rooted, absolutely rooted, in how I look. It's how, it's what clothes I'm wearing. It's how my hair is. It's how slim I am. It's... In fact, you know, it's true, isn't it? Uh, Apparently, that a bloke looks in the mirror and uh, this is the way it works. Apparently, a guy looks in the mirror and he kind of, "Mm, yeah, not bad, looking all right, when actually he should be thinking, you've got a problem. (laughs) Uh, And a woman looks in the mirror and thinks, oh no, this is terrible, when actually she's all right. We have a distorted perspective and our distorted perspective in looking in a mirror It is challenging our very identity at the very core of our being. We are taking how we look, which shouldn't we have at least some concern about how? Of course we should. But don't we take that good thing and we make a moderate desire an immoderate desire. We stretch it beyond all proportion. Now do you see how gluttony which the medieval world and the ancient world had a handle on because, after all, there weren't many things that you could be excessive in in those days. In a day when literally having two suits of clothes was considered uh, well-to-do, literally having two a change of clothes back in your tent was a privilege, what else did you overcommit on? You overcommit on food because there is nothing else. And so what was going on in that situation, we can take, we can transfer three, four thousand years or five hundred years, however long we want, however far back we want to go, and we can say today's gluttony looks like this. It looks that I take every good thing. And I make it an ultimate thing. I make it a point of identity. I make it a point of me. If I am not considered, if people don't like my comment, what am I going to do? I've put a comment up, it's 20 minutes and nobody's liked it. What's gone on? What is happening? I want to look at this uh, situation that we have in front of us because I think Herod gives us a window into this issue. Uh, We see a man here, uh, a very powerful man. King Herod, uh, um, he was leading the the nation, uh, the principality, under Roman rule. He was, if you like, he was the stooge king. And at the same time, at different points, depending on how the political situation was, he would be either ruling alongside or... His particular uh, role would be ruling alongside Roman leaders. There were times when he was relatively more free, or the king was relatively freer, uh, and then times when he was relatively more oppressed by the Romans. But essentially, during the time of Jesus, he's a a stooge king. We see later on exactly the same man uh, in the trial of Jesus ruling alongside Pontius Pilate don't we? We see Herod and Pontius Pilate, these two men, appear in the final uh, uh, hours of Jesus' life. We see uh, Herod Uh, and we see that the relationship between this man who is uh, essentially and historically the leader of God's people the nation of Israel, he is essentially that in historical terms. He flows through that line. He is uh, in a real state of crisis with the prophet of the day, which is John the Baptist. So we have this, this kind of crisis going on. The one who was in the place of rule, as go, uh, the rule of God's people, is being as we see time and time and time again through the history of the Bible, the king is not effective as the king. The, the, the human kings are not effective. And the voice of God through the prophet is coming and saying to this king, you are living a life which is not right. What has happened is that Herod has taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Uh, the, the, I think it's Josephus. Writes about the fact that he went uh, to visit his brother Philip in Rome. And uh, had a relationship with Herodias. Herodias ended up divorcing Philip and ended up marrying Herod. And that's the story. That's the kind of, that's the soap story of the day. You know, that's the kind of billboard, um, tabloid story. Herod, the king, the leader of God's people, has taken his brother's uh, wife. The spokesman for God, the prophet of the day, John the Baptist, this uh, eccentric prophet, the one who has, uh, the importance of John the Baptist in biblical terms, for those of you who don't know, is that he is, re- is uniquely amongst the prophets identified in the Old Testament as a prophet who is to come. <laughs> he is one who is described as coming just before Jesus, so he's unique and he comes uh, into, uh, into, the, into the area, he grows up, he becomes a man and he lives this nomadic existence and uh, he is he's getting a tremendous following. People are listening to his word, he, he dresses in, in, in uh, animal skins, he, he eats, he eats like um, like Bear grills, you know, he just kind of grabs locusts and bits of honey and he just forages. That's the kind of picture. He lives this wild nomadic life and yet he is speaking the word of God into the situation. And Herod's wife hates him. She hates it Because he's challenging the conscience of the man. And her as well. You know, does she hate it because he's upset? Well, yes. Does she hate it because he's upsetting her as well? Yes, of course. That's the way it works, doesn't it? That's the way our conscience works. You know, it niggles away. Maybe you're in that situation. Maybe you are very, very conscious. Uh, that God is challenging you and God is speaking to you and it's coming to you again and again and it's like that nagging, you cannot get away from it, it's just there, it's grinding away and at some point you are going to have to face up to that issue. You're going to have to deal with it. I am going to have to deal with my issues. We we just go through life like that, don't we? We've got that going on and in some way the good thing about God... Is he places those situations in front of us, and opportunity is there to say, Our conscience, deal with it. Herodias hates John. And so the story unfolds. There's a bizarre picture that is portrayed here, it's just a little verse. Uh, In verse uh, 19. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to. She was not able to because Herod. Why? Because Herod feared John and protected him. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Isn't that amazing? Even though he is living the way he is living. There is something that is saying to him. You ain't killing him. You know, there's there's probably, there was quite likely other people where he wouldn't have given tuppence if she'd have said, I want his life. He wouldn't have batted an eyelid. No issue. Off with the head. There's my wife satisfied. But there was something with John. And again, I would say, in that crisis of conscience, isn't there something that is saying to you, no, hang on. There's something right about this message of the Bible. There is something right about what is being said. There is something that is going on that is saying I need to listen to this. I can't get away from it. And we've got this picture here that uh, uh, he sees him as a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Here's this rich king and I don't know how it worked I'm pretty sure that the rich king wouldn't have gone down to the prison cells can you imagine what it would have been like in the court of King Herod as the stinking prisoner called John the Baptist in chains was dragged up from the prison pulled through the corridors straight into the presence of the king because once again King Herod Wanted to hear him. It's amazing isn't it? What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Sadly. I've been in many situations down through the years. Where there have been people who have wanted to hear. They have wanted to hear. They have wanted to hear. But that's as far as it's gone. They just wanted to hear and it's never moved to a point of being outside to being inside. It's always been out there. It's never, it's, there's been the crisis. But it's never moved to that personal recognition. And that's the picture that we see with, with King Herod. We see him here, he brings him in. And then we see, if you like, that's giving us the background. That's what it was like. <laughs> there's crisis in the family There's crisis between Herod and his brother Philip and there's crisis between Herodias and Herod. and And now, verse 21, finally, the opportune time came. Five little words. But what a moment. This is it. This is the crossroads. For Herod. The opportune time came for Herod in a way that he did not expect it. He didn't expect it. It was his birthday. And the tradition has it that that Herod was uh, well known for excessive feasting. Uh, And in those ancient days feasting could literally go on for days and days and days and days. And uh, Herod, we see here, it's his birthday, uh, and so he throws a huge banquet for his high officials, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. There is this huge gathering of the boys. It's a boys' time, and, and uh, it could well have lasted days, and uh, they would have been eating sumptuously, uh, greedily, uh, and... Hastily, I doubt there would have been much dainty eating going on. But it was all happening. And alongside that, you can guarantee that there was at least a proportionate amount of alcohol is being consumed. You see what's happening? You see what's happening? What is an acceptable thing... A moderate desire is being lived out immoderately. How do we know it has become immoderate? How do we know it's become immoderate? We know it's become immoderate because the next few verses tell us so. We've got food uh, going on. We've got drink going on. And then we find that as the boys get excited, the daughter of Herodias... Steps in and dances for them and they love it. They just they just love it. Now I don't think I need to say that they would be comparable to strictly come dancing judges. They were not checking out the quality of her footsteps, they were turned on. Now, the tragedy of this, if we just stop and think about this, let's put it in plain terms. Herod is switched on by the dancing of his stepdaughter. How does that make you feel? Feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? Well, it should feel uncomfortable. It really should feel uncomfortable. You say what, well, how do we know that moderate desires have become immoderate? Because of the actions that happen as a result of them. You see what happens? What is completely unacceptable, his stepdaughter's dancing has become a thing of excitement. For somebody who, by the normal pattern of human life, should have been there to protect her, shouldn't he? Herod should have been there to protect her. He should have been there to say, Listen, love, get out of here because this isn't a place for you, and I don't want you to be seen like this, I don't want you to be considered like this, but no, immoderate. Uh, activity, immoderate desires have grown out of all proportion and taken him on a journey where he becomes the driving force in the whole idea. Because he turns around and he says, right, anything. <laughs> anything. You can have anything up to half my kingdom. So an immoderate activity becomes immoderate thoughts, becomes an immoderate promise, doesn't it? He has now made a ridiculous promise. You can have anything. What does she ask for? The head of John the Baptist. Did that come to her? Not as we read it. She disappears out and checks out with mum. Here's the moment. This is the opportune time. You want an opportune time? It's It's absolutely at that moment where Herod poses the question. That's the opportune time. What do you want now? Crisis, it's unfolding, it's unravelling right before him. She goes out, she disappears, she comes back in and she says, the head of John the Baptist, he was destroyed. How do we know, how do we know when our immoderate desires Or, what rather, how do we know when our natural desires have become immoderate? We know that they have become immoderate when they drive our lives. And that is exactly what we see here. We see Herod, who is in the middle of the feast, and the last thing that we could possibly have is the feast destroyed. The eating has to carry on, the drinking has to carry on, and what more do we see? We see that he is now faced with the crisis, the crisis of his reputation before his friends. Friends are a good thing, but when my reputation before my friends is so important to me that it drives me to make the wrong decisions I have an immoderate, disproportionate holding on to my friendships. It's driving me in a way which is not right. Now I know that there will be those of us in this room tonight who will be driven to behaviors and to patterns of life because we hold on to things so tightly. I cannot possibly not do this because of my friendships. I cannot possibly not do that because if I do I will be considered. The problem is that when we hold on to things that tightly when we hold on to things that tightly that they break anyway. They do. They break anyway. Hold on to my children so tightly that in the end they'll run away. Hold on to my parents so tightly that in the end they'll feel strangulated. <laughs> hold on to my relationships. Hold on to my, my desires for food so tightly that in the end it will kill me. Literally. Hold on to my needs for, for satisfaction with alcohol. It will kill me. We hold on to things so tightly that in the end they will crush us. They will destroy us. There's a verse in Philippines that says this. I've told you before and I'll tell you again. With tears. Many live as enemies of of the cross of Christ. How do we know that they're enemies of the cross of Christ? Because their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. I am driven That verse tells us there are some who are driven by self-satisfaction, by bodily satisfaction. It's all about now. It's all about how I feel. It's all about my experience. It's all about this moment in time. Now. Do we live like that? Do we live as if now is the moment in time? Herod is living as if now is the only moment that matters, isn't it? And he's making a decision as if now is the only moment that matters. And the decision that he makes because his reputation is on the line. Because the feast is on the line. And because alcohol has flowed. His decision is to go and cut off the head of John the Baptist. That is the decision which he then lives with for the rest of his life. He lives with that decision. But there is an even more tragic Perspective to this story. Because we see this in Herod. We read earlier that he is puzzled. By John the Baptist. (laughs) He's puzzled by him. Uh, And he's interested in him. And he keeps on asking him to talk. And he treats the interest and the excitement. And the possibility of John the Baptist. Uh, As an interesting person, in exactly the same way as food, in exactly the same way as alcohol, in exactly the same way as friendships. It's self-motivated. How do we know that? Because history repeats itself, kind of, sometime later. Because another person, rather like John the Baptist, finds themselves in front of Herod, Jesus. We read in Luke this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Hey, oh, God, that John the Baptist, he's dead. But Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Here's another opportunity to, to satisfy my thinking, to get me uh, feeling a bit of interest and to, to kind of stimulate the, all of those experiences of, of conversations with John the Baptist. He was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. here's here's Herod can you picture it it's all about the now it's all about the moment do you live live as a Christian thinking that miracles are the be all and end all they're not (laughs) they're not this is what this says he's hoping for a sign of some sort because if I got a sign that's everything isn't it Jesus comes into right before Herod Standing in front of him. He plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. That is a tragedy. But the tragedy that we see there began years before. When he treated John the Baptist as a commodity... When he treated his friends as a commodity. When he treated food and alcohol as as a commodity. When he treated everything around him as what's satisfying me now. And then Jesus, the son of the living God, the king of heaven, comes right in front of him. The miracle worker. And he treats Jesus like a commodity as well. And he says right now, come on. Give me some answers and perform a sign for me. And there is silence. The silence. And that is a tragedy because the silence of Jesus is the most awful thing that you can read about in the Bible. It's the most awful thing. Jesus is silent in front of him. We can get to a point where we treat Jesus as a commodity and when we treat him as a commodity something to satisfy our thinking he will be silent in front of us. But the great news is this because gluttony is mentioned many times in the bible but one of the occasions that it's mentioned is with jesus as it says this the son of man came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners You know, they had all of the kind of right way of living lined up. And as far as they're concerned, Jesus didn't fit it. Because he went and he feasted with people who were disreputable. He came to people who knew that they needed him. Actually, that's not always the case. He came to people who didn't realize they needed him. But in the conversations, as they unfolded, they realized they, they, they needed him. He came to ordinary people. And he was accused of being a glutton. But how does that verse finish? It says this. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And so they say, Jesus, you're a glutton and a drunkard. You're just a glutton and a drunkard. You can be disregarded. You're a glutton, you're a drunkard, and you spend time with tax collectors and prostitutes. And that combination means I can disregard you. But, we say, wisdom Is that wise for Jesus to have done that? Oh, it's wise for Jesus to have done that because wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Because the end result of that is that Jesus didn't just come and talk to tax collectors and sinners. He didn't come and just eat with them and and drink with them. No, he came and died for them. That's what it means when it says that wisdom is proved right by deeds. Because Jesus didn't end it with just engagement with people. He carried it through and he engaged in such a way where he gave himself for people. He was accused of being a glutton and yet he came precisely for people who were filling their lives with just that finding their satisfaction in food and alcohol and relationships, thinking that this was it, and he comes in and he says, no, I'll tell you what, I am it. I am it, and I'm going to die for you, and my actions will prove to be right. (laughs) Are you living where you know that that there are things that you are holding on to, friendships, food, relationships, relationships, Alcohol, sex, whatever it might be. Are you living on to those things? And Are they becoming your identity? Are you feeling crushed if you don't get a comment on Facebook? Because you feel as if you have no friends? I don't say that flippantly. Because I know that there are some folks who are feeling crushed. Because they feel friendless. They feel friendless. And Jesus says, I have come to be the friend. Of those who are putting all of their hope in all of these temporary things. These good things, yes, but if you make them the ultimate, they're going to crush you. But I have come to give myself and to, be, to die for those who need me more than anything. Can I commend to you that Jesus? Because in coming into relationship with that Jesus is precisely the way. And in storing and securing and building that relationship with Jesus in our ongoing Christian life is precisely the way where we begin to feel our fingers slightly, gradually loosening from those things that we hold on to, that we think will satisfy us, and yet never do. Gluttony? It's not that straightforward, is it? It's not just about a big meal. But it is ultimately about Jesus. It is ultimately about him satisfying us, even when we look to good things in immoderate ways.